Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, welcome along. This week, we're having a look at the writing day of James Swallow, who has written pretty much everything. His own books, other people's books, TV tie-in fiction, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, video games. Uh, his new book is a spy thriller called Rogue. Uh, we talk about how he compartmentalises his writing to be able to work on so much that is different at the same time. Uh, we also talk about what he's learned and studied uh, through the years, about how he knows he works best and how he's trying to change that. And we also talk about his plotting, how he gives that initial idea a little room to wiggle around. You go, well, this is what the book's going to be, and it's going to be all these things. And you start writing it, and oh, maybe it would be better if I kind of take this direction, or if this character's working, but that one's not. You know, And I want to build in enough space where if I find I'm in the position things aren't working or a different direction opens up and it's more interesting, I want to have the space to explore that and not say, I don't have the, I don't have the time. You know, I have to stick to what I've got because I have to deliver by X day. I want to have that, that flex inside the process. Loads more on the way with James Swallow in this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. Thanks for giving us a listen. Uh, this is Writer's Routine, the show where we take a look at an author's day to very simply see how they organise it how they organise their time and their thoughts and all the other stuff that they've got going on uh, to tell stories and then to sell the stories afterwards. Uh, now today we have a storyteller supremo. He's just written so many different things. Uh, but James Swallow, uh, a little glance at his website is pretty awe-inspiring really. That's what he does. He's a storyteller. A storyteller with a with a little geeky twinge, I'd say, uh, with tie-in books like uh, for Doctor Who and for 24 and for Warhammer. And I love it. You know, I love when someone knows what they like, what they love, and they have the talent to make a living from it. Uh, we talk about how that happened, what it was like deciding to do it full time. Uh, he's a proper student of the craft of writing, too. It's so good to have to have him on the show with, with his tips and uh, his kind of experience of working things out. We hear how he analyses his work, uh, playing on his strengths and trying to improve his weaknesses too. Now, his new book is a Mark Dane thriller. It's called Rogue. It's all about an MI6 agent who's usually behind a screen and gets dragged into the field. Uh, we chat about how he's always been obsessed by books, how he moulded that love into a career, uh, the difference between writing your own ideas to writing what someone else wants you to, there's also quite a lot of video game chatter in this as well. I'm interested in, in what writing uh, for a video game actually means. We've done uh, well over 100 episodes now, and I've, n I've never chatted to a video game writer before. I want to know everything about it. We also talk about the difference in James's ideal writing day and, and practically what actually has to happen. So all that's on the way, and we get into it, as we always do, with what James sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I've got like a little corner of uh, a back room in my house uh, that one of my writer friends referred to as a fighter pilot cockpit because it's just a little sort of niche 
So there's a table, uh, there's my, my desktop on top of it, and a, a couple of sort of pictures around me. But it is very small, very cramped. And I quite like the analogy of that because I like the idea of sort of strapping in, pulling down the canopy and, you know, pulling on the afterburners. I think that's it's very much the kind of style of writing that I do. Uh, but generally, it's just my monitor right in front of me, a couple of little sort of little bits of, you know, the old monitor juju, the little sort of models and stuff. I've got like a, one of the little rockets from uh, Destination Moon, uh, a little Buddha a friend of mine brought me back from, from China. But not a lot of clutter. It's all pretty much just like me and the screen. I imagine just knowing, knowing what you write and knowing that you're quite sci-fi, I'm imagining it to be quite a dark room. Uh, that, that's just my judgment it might be wrong what is well, it like what, yeah, what's actually, the colour it, well, it doesn't get enough light it's, it's okay. actually quite uh, sky blue paint on the walls okay. but um, it's full of so many boxes it looks like an Amazon warehouse you know it's a, I've, everything's covered every bare space on the wall there is no bare space because it's all covered with bookshelves and in front of those are piles and piles of boxes of books you know some of which are mine some of which are other people's uh, constantly getting higher and higher to the point now that it's really difficult if I want to get a book out to research I have to move like 10 tons of stuff to kind of find it you know it's uh, it's an addiction for me right every time I can't walk past a second hand bookstore or have someone offer me a free book without going yes absolutely so I'm always constantly sort of like piling up more and more stuff uh, so uh, I feel like the walls are closing in on me a little bit I really need to do something about it but generally it's packed full of stuff it's um I'm on just vaguely on the right side of looking like a hoarder at the moment. Without getting too philosophical about this, the fact it's cluttered full of stuff, I think some people say that you're like your desk, your workspace is a reflection of your mind. I know mine at home is so chaotic. Uh, is it a reflection of your mind? Is, is, uh, is your brain quite cluttered with just paraphernalia? Uh, yeah, I think to a degree. I mean, it's, it's funny. My desk is not cluttered. The actual, the actual tiny corner of the room that I actually work on is quite clean. But it's the rest of the space that is clad. So I often think of it as, um, on the shelves and stuff, I have, like, trophies. I consider, like, trophies. It's, if you ever remember the old Superman comics, you know, when you would see Superman's Fortress of Solitude, and there's the room he has from all the supervillains that he's defeated, and he's got all these different items. As a kid, that always stuck with me. So everything I've ever done, every franchise I've ever worked on, every project I've ever done, I have a little thing that is emblematic of that. So, for example... I worked on uh, some Doctor Who audio drama, so I have a little TARDIS sitting in the corner of the room. Is I have uh, you know different objects from different countries I've worked in or different places I've visited for research, like you know like a little model of the Fernsey Turm Tower from Berlin when I was out there for doing research. So I have all these little kind of items, which for me is kind of like my equivalent of Superman's trophy room. Is all these kind of little touchstones for me? Is that I guess represents the clutter, for want of a better term. Plotting, if I were to walk into your room, into the cockpit, would I see anything that hints as to what the next story is about? Have you got a whiteboard covered in post-it notes? No, I've got like a virtual whiteboard on, uh, on the computer. It's, I would like to have one. I've thought about it. Um, I don't have, a, again, I don't have a lot of space in there for stuff like that. There was a, a writer of my acquaintance, a screenwriter, he had a massive blackboard. I mean, it's sort of easily, I'd say... 10 metres by 2 metres, stretching across the wall that he would write in chalk. On, and, and I always thought, that's really cool. I kind of like the romance of that. The idea of having a board full of all this sort of information. You put like weird... It's the sort of thing you see in a, in a, in a movie, right? So some scientist has got some crazy sort of like mad sprawl or a conspiracy theorist with all the strings going in different directions. I like the idea of that, um, but I don't have the space for it. <laughs> so I have like a digital version of that. You know, you'd, if you were looking at my desktop, what you'd see is like five or six different windows open, you know, one of which would be, here's the actual document I'm working on. And then there'll be like, this one's for references, this one's for characters, this one's a plotting document, this one's a sort of freeform flow chart. So all those things are there for me to flick between them as I'm working. Are you using a specific software for this? I know this sounds incredibly niche, but people ask, or is it just Word? Is it's it- just Word. You know, I've, I've got a lot of friends who swear by Scrivener, and uh, I have screenwriting friends who absolutely love First Draft. And I say, you know, whatever, whatever tool is the right tool for you, then, then that's fine. But personally, I think, you know, if you can't set your tabs in Word, you're not a writer, you know? I mean, if you can't do it, you know, if you can't write in text... A text editor, page, right? Yeah. If you go around a blank page, it's, it's all text, right? It's all writing, you know. At the end of the day, it's the device that makes it, whatever is the thing that makes it frictionless for you, use that. The show is writer's routine, James. Talk me through yours. Then the moment you wake up, and I'm very interested because you've written so much across so many different genres, screenplays, 
audio, novels, la la la. Um, I think I'm hoping it's going to be quite refined. So talk me through yours. The moment you wake up to the, it might be a surprise for me. <laughs> the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are sat down to write, how does it look? There's the empirical ideal of what my day should be. And then there's the crushing reality, which aren't always the same thing. You know, I try to try and make them as close together as possible. My ideal, let's, let's say, you know, the... To start with, The yes, ideal, ideal of my day okay. is, uh, I tend to, so I'm up at eight, I spend a little bit of time sort of faffing around, looking at emails, uh, addressing my kind of social media stuff. Hopefully, hands-on keyboard, bum in chair, brain engaged by no later than 10 o'clock. Work through until maybe 1 o'clock for lunch, stop for maybe half an hour. Generally, I find myself sitting in front of my computer eating my lunch while reviewing what I've done in the morning. And then I work through in the afternoon, uh, usually until uh, my wife comes home from work, and that's around about 5 or 6 if I'm really, really tight on a deadline, I'll kind of do maybe an extra couple of hours after that, sometimes pushing myself to finish maybe seven or eight o'clock if, it's, if, you know, if it really, really needs it. And generally, I try to do a five-day week, try to keep my – recently, it was a six-day week, and, and I kept thinking to myself, you know, I can't continue to do this pace. The older I get, the more it's going to just like wear me down. So in the last year or so, I committed myself – to taking off a weekend like normal people do and actually having a bit of downtime. And I've so far kind of sticking to that. So that's the ideal. What tends to get in the way? What breaks it up? Usually it's the, the putting out fires is the, the, the firefighting stuff is, is having working on multiple projects. You know, there'll be the thing that's in front of me right now, which is here's the book I'm writing. But there'll be, here's the next project you're going to be doing in six months' time. Here's the project maybe you'll be working on in a year's time. Maybe you're working with these people. Maybe you're dealing with the marketing for a book that's coming out. Or you're talking to a foreign marketer about their marketing. That's the stuff that I find. The two primary time sinks is that, dealing with the the, the, the conversations, the, the email conversations that you have to have. As when you reach the position as a sort of like a jobbing writer, you know, when that's like your day job, you have to kind of be dealing with this sort of stuff. And that can really chew up half of your day, your whole day, if you don't really address it. And the other thing is social media, is being on top of that, is that can also be a time sink because you have to deal with it. You know, you have to be engaged. You have to make sure that you have a presence there. And you can find yourself getting stuck by, you know, instead of actually putting up a post, and it's like, well, I'm just going to read Twitter for five minutes. Mm. Next thing you know, you've wasted half an hour looking at stuff that you don't really need to so it's about being disciplined on those two things i think those are the those are the kind of the the booby traps that you can step into that can eat up a lot of your time if you're not careful so on an ideal day how many words would you get down i try to work from 1500 to two and a half thousand words are they perfect words i like to think so i i mean i tend to be uh, my editorial process the in terms of the actual writing, what I'll do is when I, when I sit down in front of the computer, the first thing I will do is I'll go back to what I wrote the previous day and do an edit through that. So I'll go back and nip and tuck just a little bit here and there. And I find that kind of primes the pump, kind of gets me up to speed. So by the time I've edited what I did in the previous day, I'm now up sort of like, you know, I've got air under my wings and I'm ready to go. And I just go straight into writing whatever my next, that particular day's word count is. So every day I'm editing, writing, editing, writing, editing, writing. Can I ask what the edit is very quickly? Is it, is it just a quick uh, edit of typos? Is it have you had ideas overnight which you then need to refine? What type of edit is All it? All of the above. Okay. Pretty much, you know, I'll, I'll look back and think, oh, maybe that, you know, that I read that line yesterday, but now I look at it, it doesn't quite work. Or, you know, I've, I've gone away and I've thought, actually, you know what, this would be better if I said X instead of Y. Or, you know, mm. it could be structural changes, it could be dialogue changes. It can be as simple as just checking to make sure I spelt stuff correctly. It depends on the, the, what the nature of the piece I've just done is, where my head is at. But that process is, is whatever the editorial need is of the moment will be what I'll do. I come from a, like a working class blue collar family. Um, I consider myself more a craftsman than an artist. So I think I've kind of been brought up with the idea of the nine to five sort of process. As, as I, I often say that, you know, I treat my writing in the same way I would as if, if I was working as like a, a baker or a plumber or a dentist. It's like, you know, you do your job, arse in chair, hands on keyboard, as Brian Clements always used to say. Um, I aim for that sort of style of process. So that's what feels right to me. Having said that, the, the dream is I'd love to be able to kind of meet my word count in the morning and then just like, you know, put my feet up for the afternoon. And sometimes when uh, I, I hit a really good day and everything's working really well, I'll find I get to my word count early 
and I'll quit and I'll do a bit of research, play some video games or, you know, watch a movie, read a book and just have a little bit of leisure time. But that's usually the exception rather than the rule. How has your writing style changed over the years? So have you written over 50, is it over 50 novels? Yeah. How has it changed over the years? Now you're doing this full time because, as you say, you used to work a nine to five job. How has it changed? What have you learned about how you work best? I think... With experience comes kind of a, a confidence in your own work and a confidence in your own abilities. The, the, I've, I've got a kind of clear-eyed sense of exactly how good I am at what I do and, and where my weak spots are and what I'm, what I'm best at and what I'm worst at. And I think having that ability to be honest with myself as a writer, that is the key thing. Because now I can look back at my work and say to myself, okay, you know what, you didn't do very well with this, or this bit works really well, but this bit doesn't. So I can focus my energy on the places where it really needs to go. And I think at the beginning of my career, I didn't really have that ability because I didn't know myself, I didn't know my work as well. And I think that's the key change for me. Will you allow yourself to be honest with us? I mean, I know, I know you're here to promote a book, sure. so everyone go by the book, but will you allow yourself to be honest and say, Absolutely. what are you good at? But then what do you find yourself constantly coming back and saying, I need to work on this? I feel, uh, I think my, my strengths as a writer is in pacing and structure. I think I've got a really good ear for the music of a story is I can look at a synopsis. I can look at the, the large meta story and say, okay, I need a car chase or a dance number here or there. I need to, you know, this is where I need to slow down. This is where I need to speed up. So I feel that is where my strength is at. And that's certainly something that I do with these thriller books. My is that, sorry, very quickly, is that through tuition? No, I think it's just a gut instinct. I think it's just a talent that I've developed. That's just the thing I'm good at, I guess. Great. And I don't know how I've kind of lucked into that. It's just, it's just a process that I feel I can see that clearly. And often, you know, when I work with other writers, some of my, my colleagues will give me stuff to be to read precisely because they say, oh, well, I know you're good at this. Can you look at it and see, you know, is there a point where you think it sags or it rises too high? In terms of what I think I'm constantly working on, I think I have bad habits when it comes to character. I, I second-guess myself a lot when I'm trying to write structure characters, present characters. I'm often looking at them and thinking, you know, am I getting my point across? Am I making these characters empathetic enough, interesting enough? Am I making them sticky enough for the reader to want to learn more about them? I feel like that's the place where my skills aren't as good as they could be. But I, I like the fact that I think that because mm. I think it drives me to, to try and do the job, to, to, to go the extra mile for these sort of things. Away from the theory of the day and the actual practicalities, back when you were working a full-time job, how were you structuring your writing around those days, maybe for the benefit of, of someone who's not as fortunate enough to be able to do this full-time? Very badly, let me say. <laughs> the, the story I tell about that, the about why I ended up eventually quitting my day job, is what I would do is I, I would work a regular nine-to-five five job. I worked in an industrial laboratory. And uh, for fun, and then for a little bit of pin money, I was writing articles in short fiction. And I would come home, have some dinner, go up to my room and just sit there and type, and I would be writing until, like, stupid o'clock in the morning. And then I would go back to work the next day, and I was falling asleep in meetings. And I just thought, why am I doing this? This is not, this is not where my energy is. This is not what I love doing. The job is the thing I'm doing that's paying the, paying the bills, but what I really want to do is write. And so I got to a point where I decided I have to, you know, Try and make a go at this as a full-time career or, or, or not. You know, which, which, way, which path is my life going to take? So I banked a bit of money and I quit my job cold. And I can remember my boss at the time saying, quite worried about me, going, are you sure you can do this? You know, you can come back yeah, every see, see you next year, that kind see of thing. Yeah, yeah but, but not kind of in a sort of like, you're going to be a horrible failure. It was like, I'm actually quite worried for yeah. you. And, and it took me two years to kind of work my way back up to earning the same amount of money I was earning at a day job. And I had some, some really lean times and there were points where, you know, it was quite bad. But I never actually felt like I'd made a mistake. I just knew I just had to work, you know, everything would be fine. I just have to get there. I never felt like, oh, God, you made a terrible mistake, you know, run back to what you were doing. And I've never regretted it. I've never looked back. But I think I was lucky that I was in a circumstance where I'd done that, where I had enough savings in the bank, where I could have weathered a couple of years, mm. you know, in the wilderness. And I had the opportunities, luckily as well, I had the opportunities to sell stuff too at the time. As you're a grafter, you've already said, you know, you treat this as a, as, as a full-time job. I would imagine, because you're working across so many different projects at the same time almost, 
your year must be fairly meticulously planned. Very much so. Can, yeah. you, can you talk to me? I'll say January through January, but whatever. So when you so you've just published Shadow. When you had finished Shadow, and then you've got to write another book. How does that look? When do you start getting ideas? When do you get? Your, when do you start writing? When do you get your first draft down? When does that? Talk me through that if you can. So looking at the the sort of yearly process, what I'll do is subconsciously, I'm always working on another thing when I'm working on a thing. So like I'll, I'll be writing one particular novel, but in the back of my head, there's a couple of ideas that will sort of like be churning around. And in my free time every now and then, I'll think like, oh, you know, here's a great idea. Here's a bit of dialogue for that. And here's my notebook that I'm carrying around with me wherever I go. It's very pretty, may I say. Thank you very much. Yes, it's, uh, it's, uh, this is a little birthday gift from my wife. Um, so I'm always carrying a notebook, and I always say to everybody, always make sure you have, if you want to write, always make sure that you have something to write stuff down. Because I think the truth about writers is we are always writing. We're not always writing it down is the difference. Is you know that you're on a train staring out of the window, you know, you're you're listening to a conversation, subconsciously you're always writing. And then there's the day where you're actually sitting in front of the keyboard and you're actually kind of committing it to paper. So I, I see those as two different discrete processes. Is the, the, the actual writing down is the physical effort, but there's the kind of the subconscious processing of stuff. And that's where the other thing is happening. So project A is what I'm working on right now, but in my head subconsciously I'm working on project B in my free time. And I'll make notes on that, and that will gradually kind of accrete to the point where it actually becomes a thing that I actually start writing down. And then I'll switch projects. I'll finish one. I'll walk straight to the other. I mean, I, I, I will have maybe a week or two, <laughs> ideally, if I can have a little bit of free time between them. But what I find is usually I finish a project, and the next day I have this horrible, weird sort of feeling of bereftness. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, I don't have anything to write today. That kind of feels a bit weird. You know, and I go for a couple of days and then I start to think, yeah, I need to start writing something else. And and I'll start work on, on whatever the next thing will be. So I'm always running maybe subconsciously two or three things in my head while I'm consciously running the project that I'm working on. And in terms of plotting out my year... What I'll do is, is I can, in my, in my heyday, I was doing two and a half novels a year. And I was really kind of burning the candle at both ends. Is this not the heyday? No, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about like when I was younger and, okay. and stupider and, and, and I didn't have sort of as many uh, responsibilities as I do now. Now I've got older, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I don't want to write that vigorously. I want to actually have some free time. I want to actually have some spare time in a life like normal people do. So I've, uh, I've, I've changed... Uh, change gear a little bit and also because um i've gone more into writing my own stuff and i feel like i want to spend more time over it i want to dedicate more energy to it so i will take you know two days over something that would have taken me a day if i was writing for somebody else's franchise it's not to say that i'm not investing Hmm. the same amount of writing energy in it but i feel like i'm going over stuff twice i'm double checking things triple quadruple checking stuff because i want it to be the absolute best i possibly can make it if your final draft needs to be in for, I don't know, November, when will you start tapping away the first words at it? For November, let's think. Yeah, I'd, I'd be doing I'd, I'd be starting in the summer. I mean, probably subconsciously writing it, plotting it, putting it together for the first sort of like quarter of the year. But in summer, that's when I'd start writing. And to give myself some space, because, you know, the, these things, work always expands to give the space, the space you give it, right? You know, and things will always go in a different direction, the, what do they always say? The the plan of battle never stands first contact with the enemy. It's the same thing with your your outline. You know, you ha- you go well. This is what the book's going to be, and it's going to be all these things. And you start writing it, and oh, maybe it would be better if I kind of take this direction, or if this character's working but that one's not. You know, and I want to build in enough space where if I find I'm in the position, things aren't working, or a different direction opens up and it's more interesting. I want to have the space to explore that and not say I don't have the I don't have the time. You know, I have to stick to what I've got because I have to deliver by X day. I want to have that that flex inside the process. Which, it's funny, working on tie-in projects, outline is the king. Is, and the outline has to be very detailed because you have to present that to a licensor. And they have to have a very good idea of what you're writing. And you can't really have that much flex in that. When you're writing your own stuff, you are the licensor, right? You are in charge of the IP. It's up to you to decide. So what I find is the, 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 when I'm writing for IP-based stuff, the, the outlines are very detailed but not super long, whereas I find when I'm writing my own stuff, the outlines are very long but not super detailed. Is it tends to be a lot more kind of stream of consciousness where 
I'll, I'll line things out in a, a much more loose process where I'm giving myself permission to do some interesting bits and pieces and, you know, find interesting corners of the story as I'm writing them and allow the story to, in some degree, discover itself. Are you always open to characters discovering something about the story that you did not know was there? Or if, if you get the idea that they are dragging you so far off a tangent, it's almost not worth the time, do you, will you rein them in? I try to plot enough so that won't happen. But, you know, yeah, sometimes I find that, you know, a character will nudge me in a different direction. And, again, if I can build the flexing, I can explore that. And if it's not working, then I can, okay, this isn't going to happen, you know, chop that chapter. But I try to have a good enough idea in my head of where it's going to go that hopefully I won't waste too much time going down a blind alley. So you're more on the plotter side rather than the pants? Yeah, definitely. I think I think absolutely. I mean, I I, I can't. I can't pants. I can't pants a story. I mean, I, I look at writers who do that and I think, how could you, how can you begin with that roadmap? I mean, I can see the kind of, I understand the, the ideal of it, the, the sort of the romantic ideal of like, yes, absolutely, you know, throw caution to the wind. I'm like, I admire anybody who could do that because for me, I would just start to panic. It's nuts, isn't it? I had, um, I had Anne Cleves on the show and she knows nothing. She knows absolutely nothing when she sits down. Wow. So she tells me. Um, but because she, she's of the opinion... Why, why, why would I carry on writing something when I almost know everything myself? I want to approach yeah. it as a reader, which I understand, but come on. <laughs> no, but I, I, I can see that. I mean, there is, and I think there is, there is a sort of dynamic tension of like when you've got a really cool idea for a story and you start writing it down and you write that outline, you are spending some of that kinetic creative energy putting it down. The, you know, the, the sheer raw sort of flux of like, and then this cool thing happens, and then this cool thing happens, and now you've written it down, you're like, oh, now I've written it. I've kind of already done it. But now I have to go away and do it again. And you've got the, the outline is the sort of the just add water version of the, of the story, and it's like it's kind of all over by the shouting. I think the difficulty is keeping enough of your creative energy back so that you write the outline and it's workable, but there's still stuff in the tank that when you come to do the actual proper version of it, you're still engaged, you're still enthused, you still have something to bring to it. How are you as a writer at keeping yourself enthused, talking about that, keeping yourself enthused because this is your day job now when really like nine-tenths of you just cannot be asked. Yeah, there's always that day, right, when you wake up and you think like, um, I hate my job, I don't want to do this. Mm. Um, because the, the, the inverse is, you know, wake up other days and think, I can't believe people pay me money for this. This is awesome. And I try to remember those. There are always the days when, when I don't feel like doing it. I mean, I, people say, how do you get past writer's block? And I always say, I don't think writer's block exists. I just think there are good days and bad days. I think every writer I've spoken to has said that, you know. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you, you sit down and you think, I'm not really feeling it. It's like, well, hard luck. Write something, yeah. you know, because this is your job. And tomorrow, you know, you look back at that thing and go, you know what, this isn't very good. Then put it in the bin and start again. But the important thing is that you wrote something because you can't fix what's not on the page. If it's just in your head, it's just this malleable, formless thing. You know, in your head it's perfect or it's imperfect, but it isn't anything. It's not, it doesn't have shape, it doesn't have form. It can't be edited, it can't be improved. Because it's always going to be nebulous. Whereas if you write it down, you look at it on a page and you think, that line doesn't work, or this should be here, or that should be there. You can get into the mechanics of it, get your hands dirty, and start moving stuff around. And that, to me, feels like a much more real process than just trying to work it out in your head before you put it all down. I know you mentioned earlier, arse on chair, fingers to keyboard. When you are struck with those days where this ain't happening, uh, have you got any other tips or tricks or quirks something specific to you that just helps things happen i know some writers talk about like you know if, if you if this scene isn't working jump to the next one or you know um, go and edit something else i find i tend to be quite bloody minded about it it's like you know i'll just bang my head <laughs> against the screen until i make it work and sometimes sometimes the process of writing something bad will show you the thing that is needs to be good. You know, it's like you, you'll spend all day writing a scene. And this scene doesn't work. But in the process of spending all that energy, you'll find, oh, here's the thing that does work. So I'll chuck that away because I've suddenly revealed, I've unearthed where the good bit is. And I should have been doing X instead of Y. But at the beginning of that process, you didn't know which was the good and the bad scene. So you have to write the bad scene to find the good scene. So I, sometimes I feel like that is part of the, that's the, of the sheer sort of bloody-minded banging your head against the keyboard and producing something that's still garbage. But you have, to, you have to let it suck 
Sometimes you have to let it suck to find the stuff that doesn't suck. And you don't know going in. It's like, if, if you knew going in, this is going to do X and not Y, that would be great. That's the inefficiency of it. But finding that, going through that process, sometimes you have to explore the negative in order to find the positive. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day. But some days, you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. More from James Swallow on the way in a little bit. Uh, over the next few weeks, by the way, just thought I would flag up, we've got some big authors on. Some huge names who have sold millions of books. We've got Peter James, we've got David Baldacci, uh, and chats with them will we'll be with you soon, all being well. Before that, if you want to help us out, please do support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, honestly, at the moment, I'm constantly surprised by people who are doing that uh, because everything is so, is so up in the air. Everything's so unsure, isn't it? And, it? and if you're giving cash to a writing podcast, I just I really appreciate it. I can't thank you enough. If you want to do that too, you can pretty easily. Just a dollar or so a month really helps us out. It helps us bring you episodes and chats with as many authors as we can, as often as we can. Uh, you get merch too, just to say thank you from us. If you've learned anything in any episode that you've heard so far that has, has helped the way that you tell your stories, uh, please do say thanks with a dollar or so a month over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Uh, loads of other ways that you can help us out as well. Uh, if you're part of like a writing community, a writing group, just just I'm, I, I'm, if you are, I'm sure you probably have done this by now, but but let someone know about it. If you're not, you can let people know about it as well by leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That will help the people who need uh, the help of our writers find the help of our writers. Uh, And you can also give us a share and a follow on Twitter. We are at WritersPod over there. Right, let's get back to it then with James Swallow talking about his brand new Mark Dane thriller. It's called Rogue. In this part of the chat, we talk quite a lot about video game writing. Uh, Now, don't worry. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. Even if you don't really do video games, I think you'll still get quite a lot from it. Because I'm amazed to think at at just how much work goes into writing them. All the things that have to be covered. It's a proper exercise in storyboarding and crafting and perfecting your plot. Uh, Speaking of plots, we talk about how much he does that, how much he plans, how perfect he thinks every word has to be when he writes it, uh, and how much he just lets his brain get on with things. Uh, And we pick things up uh, talking about Rogue, the new Mark Dane thriller, and why he first started writing it. Rogue is kind of the, uh, the, the collection of stuff I've been laying in through the books for quite a while. 
So originally when I started writing this series, you know, I, I thought, well, I'm going to write a standalone series, but I want to write something that will reward readers who stick with me. And this is a thing I, I think I've learned this from writing tie-in fiction, is readers of tie-in fiction who like a particular IP, they really enjoy it when stuff is laid in early and paid off late, when, when, when their, their sort of fandom, for want of a better word, is rewarded. It's like, you know, you know this little detail... And this detail becomes part of the plot and it feels like, you know, you are, you're invested in that world. So when I'm writing my own fiction, I try to kind of replicate that idea. Is the, the deal I make with my readers is you can read these books individually and you can have fun doing it. But if you read the series, if you come with me on the journey, I'll reward your attention. To, I'll reward the fact that you're paying attention to what I'm writing. Stuff I'll put in in book one will pay off in book four or five. And I like the idea of that journey because it becomes a sort of, it's a collaborative thing. You know, we're all kind of sharing in this, in this adventure. So Rogue is me pulling a lot of threads together. I've, hopefully it's a, it's a great standalone story as well, but I'm also pulling together a lot of stuff that's happened in the previous books. It's characters that you met before, events that have happened, dangling plot threads. It's all coming together and it's all very bad for our heroes. And so, you know, I'm having a lot of fun doing that. It's just um, bringing all these pieces into sort of alignment has been a really interesting experience. And it's not really what I planned from the beginning. It's kind of grown organically as the series went on. And it just felt like this is the right choice to tell this story now and to set things up for the sixth book where all of the stuff that pays off in this book will kind of move on to a larger level, to an even bigger sort of um, climax. Well, when you are tying up all these loose threads, it needs, you know, it needs a plot. Absolutely. Can you, can you t- t- tell me about that moment where you think, right, now is the time to tell this story. I need... People have invested so much time into this. What can I tell them? Here's what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, what I did with, with Rogue is, in the previous stories, what I've got is a group of heroes going around, you know, defeating the bad guys and uh, facing all of these challenges. And they've had, you know, some, some testing experiences. But I got to a point where I thought, I really want to put them through the ringer. I really want to put them all in a box and shake that box up as much as I possibly can. So Rogue is the story basically where they take all all of their toys get taken away from them and they lose everything they've had and it's they're standing in the, in the middle of a desert with the clothes on their back and the bad guys closing in all the odds are against them i love the idea of that in the previous stories you know they've been doing cool stuff they've been going to interesting places and thrilling locations but now it's like all bets are off and that to me feels like a great way to keep the series fresh and interesting because I could keep telling the same kinds of stories, mm. having them going to sort of glitzy parties and driving Ferraris, you know, and that is fun. But to me, I think if I kept doing that, it would get a bit stale. So this is my way of shaking up the status quo a little bit while still making it exciting and engaging. You've got that as an intention. How does that translate itself to the outline? I knew where I wanted to go. I knew where I wanted that, that book to end. And I knew what experiences I wanted these characters to have. So it was asking myself, well, how do I get them from here to there? How do I do it in an engaging way? How do I explore each of the characters' personal narratives in a way that moves their characters on but also doesn't alienate new readers? It's a lot of balls to be juggling, a lot of plates to be spinning, but I like the challenge of that to kind of keep all of these elements going. So that to me was the, that was the kind of the checklist I had at the beginning is how do I do all of these elements, assemble them in the correct order, and still keep a thrilling story. That was the genesis of the outline for me. When you're writing in, in, in a more, th- in, a, in a thriller genre, when you've spent so long doing, doing kind of more fantasy-based stuff and, and, and stuff, as you say, tie-ins with, with, that's not your own IP, um, how, much of a, a, how much of a change is that? How much of a change is that in the way that you have ideas and tell stories when you, when you suddenly think, well, this is what I'm going to do with this thing? When you've got an IP, it's kind of like, imagine someone coming to you and saying, well, we want you to write a stage play, and here's a box of costumes, and here's a bunch of actors, and here's a bunch of standing sets, off you go. You have to use this stuff. And so it's okay, well, how do I build a story using these, these elements that already exist in that world? That's kind of like writing an IP. Whereas if you're writing your own stuff... You don't have any of that. You get to cast what actors, you get to build what sets you want, you get to sew what costumes you want. So there's that difference. Immediately, you have to focus your creative energy in a very different place. With an IP, you already have the world, the characters, you have the, the structure and the sets and the buildings, the, the environment that that narrative is going to take place in. So how do you put a story into that environment knowing 
that you can't make any radical changes. You can't kill off main characters. You can't blow stuff up. You can't, you know, do anything that would really shake the pillars of that mm. structure. You, so you, the stories that you tell tend to be the ones that will focus in on elements that will unfold bits of the narrative that will show a, a spotlight on a character that perhaps hasn't been illustrated in the medium that it originally came from. You know, if you're writing about, let's say, a tie-in that's based on a TV show, rarely in television will you get an internal viewpoint from a character. But in a book, you can do that really strongly. So you can explore what a character thinks and feels in prose much more than you could in television. So you get to show, highlight a different aspect of them. Whereas if you're writing something from the ground up, if you're going from, you know, your, your sort of basically your blank page, you have all that and everything else as well to deal with. So that's the, that's the kind of fundamental difference, I think, between IP and non-IP storytelling. What's it, how much responsibility do you feel as a writer when you are taking much-loved characters, um, things from Doctor Who, things from Star Trek, and, and you are interested and, uh, and you're exploring their mindset, as you've just said, which you're allowed to do in prose, you're exploring their mindset of a character which is not yours, but it's loved by, you know, millions of fans around the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, absolutely you feel the weight of that completely. And and because you know if you get it wrong, there's a million people backed up on the internet who would be quite happy to tell you that this character doesn't talk like that and they would never do this and they would never do that. You have to have I think on some degree, you, you have to kind of have a love for that franchise, whatever it is. You have to be a fan of it yourself to a lesser or greater extent, but not married to it as well, willing to sort of push the envelope a little bit. And I think in that sort of sweet spot is where you have to inhabit to be able to take the character somewhere interesting, but also be true to them. You know, you have to understand tone and texture. You have to know the world. You have to know that if you write a line of dialogue, would James T. Kirk say that? Would the doctor say that? Would they express themselves in that way? And if you don't get that right, it's, it's very difficult to kind of quantify it. it. But you know it when you hear it. You know what feels right. You know what feels wrong for those characters. That is where the key responsibility is, is to just, does it feel like a story from that world? That's the, the absolute unbreakable rule of writing an IP. It has to feel like it belongs in the fiction that it's born from i'm an instinctive pilot i think i to me i just write what feels right i don't get hung up on on how that process is happening i think if if i if i spent too much time concentrating on that i think i would kind of be tripping over my own feet narratively speaking i i, I just try and write what works and it seems like i think i kind of got it right i think if if, if i think if i if i had if I had an inconsistent authorial voice, I think that would become clear to me and I think my readers would let me know. For me, it just feels like an instinctive choice to find that tone. I think, I think every writer has an instinctive sense of what their authorial voice is and what the voice of a narrative is. And how instinctive is it for what word you're going to write next? You mentioned that because you're editing each day, you, you go for you know 2,000 words... How much thought are you giving to making sure the next word is the perfect word that can be in that point? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Again, I'm a seat-of-the-pants flyer, I think. I, I, I just, I'll write what feels right in the moment, and I'll worry about it the next day. So when I'm in the process of writing what's today's work, is that that will flow through. But then it's the day after I'll go, okay, now I'll kind of change gears. It's almost like seeing it through a different set of lenses. Mm. When I put my, my editorial glasses on, I go, okay, well, does that work? Does that feel right? Does that need to be tweaked? And then in that moment, I'm conscious of voice and tone. But when I'm writing, when I'm in the flow, I don't want to let that get in the way of just telling what feels right, getting that material down on paper. You've written games, right? Yes, absolutely. I've never spoken to anyone that's written a video game. Can you tell me how you do it? How, how, what do you do? How, how is it different from writing a, a screenplay? How is it different from writing a book? I always say this is the, it's a how long is a piece of string question okay. when people say writing for video games because it's not, one, it's not one talent. It depends on the game and it depends on the needs of the game. Is it can be just as simple as writing what in the game trade we call a cutscene, which resembles a scene from a movie you know two people sitting around a table having a conversation and that scene is presented in the way that you present a script but you would also have 
reported dialogue, you know, someone talking to you over the radio saying, well, you need to go, you know, go over here and blow up the thing and then get the get the secret uh, file from there and go back and talk to this guy. And that's the end of your mission. That's somebody over the radio talking to you. Or you might be wandering through a world in a game. You might be wandering through a village in a fantasy game. And there's a guy who's a fishmonger and he's talking about selling fish and he has a little spiel that he doesn't. Someone's going to have to write that and that's going to have to feel real and and true and authentic or that fishmonger guy might have a, a little mini story of his own a little side quest and that has to have a beginning and a middle and an end and he'll say you know oh could you help me get my cat out of a tree and i'll pay you five gold pieces and you know i love my cat and he'll tell you a story about his cat someone's got to write that it has to feel real it has to feel true you might find objects or or like say a book you might be wandering around the world and you'll find a book that you can pick up and open it and read and there'll be a bit of text in there a bit of background lore about the world a little a little bit of flavor text Someone's got to write that. That has to give you a sense of the world. That has to feel true and connected. Even down to stuff like descriptions of equipment and hardware. You know, you, you get a new magic sword for your character. And there has to be a little bit of text that says, this is the magic sword of such and such that came from so and so that was forged by this guy. And that has to have a little bit of story in there that feels like it connects to the larger sense of the world. All of it is narrative. And that's just the stuff that faces the player. There's also the invisible writing that's done before the game is even being produced, where a writer will come in and be talking to art, des- art artists, level designers, programmers, saying, well, we want this level of the game to evoke this particular emotional sense because this is the point in the story when the character is sad or happy. And we want the end of the game to be uplifting and exciting. So, you know, light it in this particular way because all of this informs narrative. Depending on the size of your game, you might not have any of that stuff. It might just be dialogue. You might have a game that is huge, spanning, something like, you know, Skyrim, one of those kind of games that has like a massive open world, hundreds of thousands of characters, hours of dialogue, you know, the the equivalent of an entire season, well, seasons of Games of Thrones worth of scripts written by 10, 20, 30 writers, 70, 100, 200 hours of narrative. All of that has to be written by somebody. That is what game writing is. It's all that and, and a lot more. So how does it work in the practical sense? Do you, uh, are you approached by a game company that says, look, we want to do a game about this. And then you, you have the overall idea for what the story is going to be, how, where the player is going to start, where he's going to finish it. You are then, you're then writing all the little mini bits and you're thinking about the thousands of dimensions that this story has to encapsulate. It's not just one person's journey. It's everything he, they might do. Mm-hmm. Yes, all the I things mean, they might read. That's a, I mean, that's a, a great point just to touch on there is um, you have to consider what uh, a player's journey through the story will be. And you have to make sure that you facilitate every type of players, or at least as much as you can. You may have a player, let's say, who's going through, uh, let's say it's a fantasy story. It's like something like Skyrim. You may have a player whose idea of fun is to kill everyone he meets yeah. and just be a complete dick. But if that's their idea of fun, you have to facilitate it. If you want to go through the entire environment and kill everybody and pick a fight with everyone that you meet and blow up everything and just be a complete scumbag, that we have to facilitate that. There has to be a way that the game will balance that. Conversely, if you're the person who wants to be the nicest of the nice, rescue every cat from every tree, help every little old lady across the street, do every decent possible thing, the game has to facilitate that and everything in between. There has to be a structure there that will support that because otherwise you're, you're cheating that player. They want to feel like they're in that world, they have agency, they, they have immersion, and they want to be the kind of player that they want to be. So you have to make sure you build a game that has all of that, has all of those variables, and doesn't you know, kind of just say, no, you can't do that thing, because the moment you tell a player they can't do something, they'll try and do it. <laughs> so they'll try, and, they'll, they'll try and break the game around you. Last question. You've written so much across so many different forms. Where does this need to tell stories come from? I really don't know. Um, I, I, I wonder if it's some bizarre, insane compulsion. Perhaps there are pills for it. I don't know. I think, I think as a kid, I was I was I was a, a heavy reader from an early age. I, I came from a family where we had a lot of books in the house, and uh, and I blew the reading curve, reading age curve, very early because my family were just giving me books all the time because it was a cheap, easy, interesting way to just engage me and 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 get me you know get me educated to learn about stuff. And uh, I, I have fond memories as a kid of like spending a lot of time in libraries of getting books as, as gifts. 
and coming from a family that respected reading, that understood that reading is like once you get somebody reading at a young age, you you give them a fantastic gift because you open a door to allow them to go out into the world and explore and discover stuff on their own. And I think that's the that's where that love of this came from. Once I got to the point where uh, you know I read my way through the kids' library and my mum would sneak me into the adult library and let me read books that were past my age group, uh, and I just I just once I found that door. I couldn't stop doing it. And and even, you know, here I am years later, I'm just still the same. It's just absorbing books every time. I can't walk past a second-hand bookstore without wandering in and buying something, you know. If people want to get around me, they go, would you like a free book? I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, a free book. I can never say no to a free book. And I just, I, that love of reading expresses itself in me is in, in, a, in a love of storytelling as well because I love the structure of story. I love the the idea that we can take just this infinitely malleable, you know, number of characters and just turn it into stories and, and reach out and, and connect with people, touch people that you're never going to meet and just tell stories and just, you know, sit around this massive virtual campfire and, and going back to the, you know, the, the idea of us just swapping stories as seems to me like a fundamental human characteristic. And it's just, it's just great. I love the idea that I can write something, put it out there into the world, people I will never meet will get to read that story and hopefully I can take them somewhere cool uh, away from their lives for a little while, entertainment and give them a little bit of fun. I love that. It feels like a, a fantastic responsibility, but also sort of just really uplifting, really positive. And I, I love that. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to James Swallow for coming on the show. Uh, you can find out more about his brand new book, Rogue, over on our website. It's writersroutine.com. Now, next week, we've got David Baldacci on the show. Huge author. Sold millions of books. Uh, I always associate him with holiday homes. You know what you mean? You know when you go on holiday, maybe you rent a chalet or something, and there's books already in there, or, or you head into the hotel lobby, and you check out their bookshelf. There's always a David Baldacci on the shelf, isn't there? Usually David Baldacci, a Dean Coots, and, and maybe something by uh, like Jilly Cooper. There's always a Jilly Cooper on there. And, and for David's work to be spread so much around the world, I mean, that is a huge success. Uh, we'll find out how he got there next week on the show. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to help us out, please do pledge whatever you can over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Give us a follow. Give us a share on Twitter. We are at writers pod. And if you do have the time, uh, leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts. That would really help the people who need the help of our authors find the help of our authors. And I will see you then. Fingers crossed, all being well, next week with David Baldacci on Writer's Routine. Bye! Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.